Chapter 10 of Book 5 of Les Miserables, Volume 2 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kai Lu. Les Miserables, Volume 2 by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 5th, For a Black Hunt, A Mute Pack. Chapter 10 which explains how Javert got on the scent. The events of which we have just beheld the reverse side, so to speak, had come about in the simplest possible manner. When Jean Valjean, on the evening of the very day when Javert had arrested him beside Fantine's deathbed, had escaped from the town jail of M. sur M., the police had supposed that he had betaken himself to Paris. Paris is a maelstrom where everything is lost and everything disappears in this belly of the world as in the belly of the sea. No forest hides a man as does that crowd. Fugitives of every sort know this. They go to Paris as to an abyss. There are gulfs which save. The police know it also, and it is in Paris that they seek what they have lost elsewhere. They sought the ex-mayor of M. sur M. Javert was summoned to Paris to throw light on their researches. Javert had, in fact, rendered powerful assistance in the recapture of Jean Valjean, Javert's zeal and intelligence on that occasion had been remarked by Monsieur Chabouillet, secretary of the prefecture under Comte Anglis. Monsieur Chabouillet, who had, moreover, already been Javert's patron, had the inspector of M. sur M. attached to the police force of Paris. There Javert rendered himself useful in divers and, though the word may seem strange for such services, honorable manners. He no longer thought of Jean Valjean, the wolf of today causes those dogs who are always on the chase to forget the wolf of yesterday, when, in December 1823, he read a newspaper, he who never read newspapers, but Javert, a monarchical man, had a desire to know the particulars of the triumphal entry of the Prince Generalissimo into Bayonne. Just as he was finishing the article, which interested him, a name, the name of Jean Valjean, attracted his attention at the bottom of a page. The paper announced that the convict Jean Valjean was dead, and published the fact in such formal terms that Javert did not doubt it. He confined himself to the remark, That's a good entry. Then he threw aside the paper and thought no more about it. Sometime afterward, it chanced that a police report was transmitted from the prefecture of the Seine-et-Oise to the prefecture of police in Paris concerning the abduction of a child, which had taken place under peculiar circumstances, as it was said, in the commune of Montfermeil, a little girl of seven or eight years of age, the report said, who had been entrusted by her mother to an innkeeper of that neighborhood, had been stolen by a stranger. This child answered to the name of Cosette, and was the daughter of a girl named Fantine, who had died in the hospital. It was not known where or when. This report came under Javert's eye, and set him to thinking. The name of Fantine was well known to him. He remembered that Jean Valjean had made him, Javert, burst into laughter by asking him for a respite of three days for the purpose of going to fetch that creature's child. He recalled the fact that Jean Valjean had been arrested in Paris at the very moment when he was stepping into the coach for Montfermeil. Some signs had made him suspect at the time that this was the second occasion of his entering that coach, and that he had already, on the previous day, made an excursion to the neighborhood of that village, for he had not been seen in the village itself. What had he been intending to do in that region of Montfermeil? It could not even be surmised. 
Javert understood it now. Fantine's daughter was there. Jean Valjean was going there in search of her. And now this child had been stolen by a stranger. Who could that stranger be? Could it be Jean Valjean? But Jean Valjean was dead. Javert, without saying anything to anybody, took the coach from the pewter platter, cul-de-sac de la planche, and made a trip to Montfermeil. He expected to find a great deal of light on the subject there. He expected to find a great deal of light on the subject there. He found a great deal of obscurity. For the first few days the Thernardiers had chattered in their rage. The disappearance of the lark had created a sensation in the village. He immediately obtained numerous versions of the story, which ended in the abduction of a child, hence the police report. But their first vexation having passed off, Thernardier, with his wonderful instinct, had very quickly comprehended that it is never advisable to stir up the prosecutor of the crown, and that his complaints with regard to the abduction of Cassette would have as their first result to fix upon himself, and upon many dark affairs which he had on hand, the glittering eye of justice. The last thing that owls desire is to have a candle brought to them, and in the first place, how explain the fifteen hundred francs which he had received? He turned squarely round, put a gag on his wife's mouth, and feigned astonishment when the stolen child was mentioned to him. He understood nothing about it. No doubt he had grumbled for a while at having that dear little creature taken from him so hastily. He should have liked to keep her two or three days longer, out of tenderness. But her grandfather had come for her in the most natural way in the world. He added the grandfather, which produced a good effect. This was the story that Javert hit upon when he arrived at Montfermeil. The grandfather caused Jean Valjean to vanish. Nevertheless, Javert dropped a few questions, like plummets, into Thernardier's history. Who was that grandfather, and what was his name? Thernardier replied with simplicity. He is a wealthy farmer. I saw his passport. I think his name was uh, Monsieur Gilliam Lambert. Lambert is a respectable and extremely reassuring name. Thereupon Javert returned to Paris. Jean Valjean is certainly dead, said he, and I am a ninny. He had again begun to forget this history when, in the course of March, 1824, he heard of a singular personage who dwelt in the parish of St. Medard, and who had been surnamed the Mendicant Who Gives Alms. This person, the story ran, was a man of means, whose name no one knew exactly, and who lived alone with a little girl of eight years, who knew nothing about herself, save that she had come from Montfermeil. Montfermeil! That name was always coming up and it made Javert prick up his ears. An old beggar police spy, an ex-beadle to whom this person had given alms, added a few more details. This gentleman of property was very shy, never coming out except in the evening, speaking to no one, except occasionally to the poor, and never allowing anyone to approach him. He wore a horrible old yellow frock coat, which was worth many millions, being all wadded up with bank bills. This piqued Javert's curiosity in a decided manner. In order to get a close look at this fantastic gentleman without alarming him, he borrowed the beadle's outfit for a day, and the place where the old spy was in the habit of crouching every evening, whining orisons through his nose, and playing the spy under cover of prayer. The suspected individual did indeed approach Javert thus disguised, and bestow alms on him. At that moment Javert raised his head, and the shock which Jean Valjean received on recognizing Javert was equal to the one received by Javert when he thought he recognized Jean Valjean. However, the darkness might have misled him. Jean Valjean's death was official. 
Javert cherished very grave doubts, and when in doubt, Javert, the man of scruples, never laid a finger on anyone's collar. He followed his man to the Gorbeau house and got the old woman to talking, which was no difficult matter. The old woman confirmed the fact regarding the coat lined with millions, and narrated to him the episode of the thousand-franc bill. She had seen it. She had handled it. Javert hired a room. That evening he installed himself in it. He came and listened at the mysterious lodger's door, hoping to catch the sound of his voice. But Jean Valjean saw his candle through the keyhole, and foiled the spy by keeping silent. On the following day Jean Valjean decamped, but the noise made by the fall of the five-franc piece was noticed by the old woman, who, hearing the rattling of coin, suspected that he might be intending to leave, and made haste to warn Javert. At night, when Jean Valjean came out, Javert was waiting for him behind the trees of the boulevard with two men. Javert had demanded assistance at the prefecture, but he had not mentioned the name of the individual whom he hoped to seize. That was his secret, and he had kept it for three reasons. In the first place, because the slightest indiscretion might put Jean Valjean on the alert. Next, because to lay hands on an ex-convict who had made his escape and was reputed dead, on a criminal whom justice had formerly classed forever as among malefactors of the most dangerous sort, was a magnificent success, which the old members of the Parisian police would assuredly not leave to a newcomer like Javert, and he was afraid of being deprived of his convict. And lastly, because Javert, being an artist, had a taste for the unforeseen, he hated those well-heralded successes which are talked of long in advance, and had the bloom brushed off. He preferred to elaborate his masterpieces in the dark, and to unveil them suddenly at the last. Javert had followed Jean Valjean from tree to tree, then from corner to corner of the street, and had not lost sight of him for a single instant. Even at the moments when Jean Valjean believed himself to be the most secure, Javert's eye had been on him. Why had not Javert arrested Jean Valjean? Because he was still in doubt. It must be remembered that at the epoch the police was not precisely at its ease. The free press embarrassed it. Several arbitrary arrests denounced by the newspapers had echoed even as far as the chambers, and had rendered the prefecture timid. Interference with individual liberty was a grave matter. The police agents were afraid of making a mistake. The prefect laid the blame on them. A mistake meant dismissal. The reader can imagine the effect which this brief paragraph, reproduced by twenty newspapers, would have caused in Paris. Yesterday, an aged grandfather, with white hair, a respectable and well-to-do gentleman, who was walking with his grandchild, aged eight, was arrested and conducted to the agency of the prefecture, as an escaped convict. Let us repeat in addition that Javert had scruples of his own. Injunctions of his conscience were added to the injunctions of the prefect. He was really in doubt. Jean Valjean turned his back on him and walked in the dark. Sadness, uneasiness, anxiety, depression, this fresh misfortune of being forced to flee by night, to seek a chance refuge in Paris for Cassette and himself, the necessity of regulating his pace to the pace of the child, all this, without his being aware of it, had altered Jean Valjean's walk, and impressed on his bearing such senility that the police themselves, incarnate in the person of Javert, might and did in fact make a mistake. The impossibility of approaching too close, his costume of an émigré preceptor, the declaration of Thernardier which made a grandfather of him, and finally, the belief in his death in prison, added still further to the uncertainty which gathered thick in Javert's mind. For an instant it occurred to him to make an abrupt demand for his papers, 
But if the man was not Jean Valjean, and if this man was not a good, honest old fellow living on his income, he was probably some merry blade deeply and cunningly implicated in the obscure web of Parisian misdeeds, some chief of a dangerous band, who gave alms to conceal his other talents, which was an old dodge. He had trusty fellows, accomplices retreats in case of emergencies, in which he would, no doubt, take refuge. All these turns which he was making through the streets seemed to indicate that he was not a simple and honest man. To arrest him too hastily would be to kill the hen that laid the golden eggs. Where was the inconvenience in waiting? Javert was very sure that he would not escape. Thus he proceeded in a tolerably perplexed state of mind, putting to himself a hundred questions about this enigmatical personage. It was only quite late in the Rue de Pontois that, thanks to the brilliant light thrown from a dram-shop, he decidedly recognized Jean Valjean. There are in this world two beings who give a profound start, the mother who recovers her child, and the tiger who recovers his prey. Javert gave that profound start. As soon as he had positively recognized Jean Valjean, the formidable convict, he perceived that there were only three of them, and he asked for reinforcements at the police station of the Rue de Pontois. One puts on gloves before grasping a thorn cudgel. This delay, and the halt at the Carrefour Roland to consult with his agents, came near causing him to lose the trail. He speedily divined, however, that Jean Valjean would want to put the river between his pursuers and himself. He bent his head and reflected like a bloodhound who puts his nose to the ground to make sure that he is on the right scent. Javert, with his powerful rectitude of instinct, went straight to the bridge of Austerlitz. A word with the toll-keeper furnished him with the information which he required. "'Have you seen a man with a little girl?' "'I made him pay two sous,' replied the toll-keeper. Javert reached the bridge in season to see Jean Valjean traverse the small, illuminated spot on the other side of the water, leading Cassette by the hand. He saw him enter the Rue de Chemin vers Saint-Antoine. He remembered the cul-de-sac Jean Rue arranged there like a trap, and of the sole exit of the Rue Drumour into the Rue Petit Pispus. He made sure of his back burrows, as huntsmen say. He hastily dispatched one of his agents, by a roundabout way, to guard that issue. A patrol which was returning to the arsenal post having passed him, he made a requisition on it, and caused it to accompany him. In such games soldiers are aces. Moreover, the principle is, that in order to get the best of a wild boar, one must employ the science of venery, and plenty of dogs. These combinations having been effected, feeling that Jean Valjean was caught between the blind alley Jean Rowe on the right, his agents on the left, and himself Javert in the rear, he took a pinch of snuff. Then he began the game. He experienced one ecstatic and infernal moment. He allowed his man to go on ahead, knowing that he had him safe, but desirous of postponing the moment of arrest as long as possible, happy at the thought that he was taken, and yet at seeing him free, gloating over him with his gaze, with that voluptuousness of the spider which allows the fly to flutter, and of the cat which lets the mouse run. Claws and talons possess a monstrous sensuality, the obscure movements of the creature imprisoned in their pincers. What a delight this strangling is! Javert was enjoying himself. The meshes of his net were stoutly knotted. He was sure of success. All he had to do now was close his hand. Accompanied as he was, the very idea of resistance was impossible, however vigorous, energetic, and desperate Jean Valjean might be. Javert advanced slowly, sounding, 
searching on his way all the nooks of the street like so many pockets of thieves. When he reached the center of the web, he found the fly no longer there. His exasperation can be imagined. He interrogated his sentinel of the Rue Droimour and Petit Pispus. That agent, who had remained imperturbably at his post, had not seen the man pass. It sometimes happens that a stag is lost head and horns. That is to say, he escapes, although he has the pack on his very heels, and then the oldest huntsmen know not what to say. Duvivier, Lenneville, and Desprez halt short. In a discomfiture of this sort, Artong exclaims, It was not a stag, but a sorcerer. Javert would have liked to utter the same cry. His disappointment bordered for a moment on despair and rage. It is certain that Napoleon made mistakes during the war with Russia, that Alexander committed blunders in the war in India, that Caesar made mistakes in the war in Africa, that Cyrus was at fault in the war in Scythia, and that Javert blundered in this campaign against Jean Valjean. He was wrong, perhaps, in hesitating in his recognition of the ex-convict. The first glance should have sufficed him. He was wrong in not arresting him purely and simply in the old building. He was wrong in not arresting him when he had positively recognized him in the Rue de Pontois. He was wrong in taking counsel with his auxiliaries in the full light of the moon at the Carrefour Roland. Advice is certainly useful. It is a good thing to know and to interrogate those of the dogs who deserve confidence. But the hunter cannot be too cautious when he is chasing uneasy animals like the wolf and the convict. Javert, by taking too much thought as to how he should set the bloodhounds of the pack on the trail, alarmed the beast by giving him wind of the dart, and so made him run. Above all, he was wrong in that after he had picked up the scent again on the bridge of Austerlitz, he played that formidable and puerile game of keeping such a man at the end of a thread. He thought himself stronger than he was, and believed that he could play at the game of the mouse and the lion. At the same time, he reckoned himself as too weak when he judged it necessary to obtain reinforcement. Fatal precaution, waste of precious time. Javert committed all these blunders, and nonetheless was one of the cleverest and most correct spies that ever existed. He was, in full force of the term, what is called in venery, a knowing dog. But what is there that is perfect? Great strategists have their eclipses. The greatest follies are often composed, like the largest ropes, of a multitude of strands. Take the cable thread by thread, take all the petty determining motives separately, and you can break them one after the other, and you say, that is all there is of it. Braid them, twist them together. The result is enormous. It is Attila hesitating between Marcion on the east and Valentinian on the west. It is Hannibal tarrying at Capua. It is Danton falling asleep at Arsis Arab. However that may be, even at the moment when he saw that Jean Valjean had escaped him, Javert did not lose his head. Sure that the convict who had broken his band could not be far off, he established sentinels, he organized traps and ambuscades, and beat the quarter all that night. The first thing he saw was the disorder in the street lantern whose rope had been cut. A precious sign, which, however, led him astray, since it caused him to turn all his researches in the direction of the cul-de-sac genreau. In this blind alley there were tolerably low walls, which abutted on gardens whose bounds adjoined the immense stretches of wasteland. Jean Valjean evidently must have fled in that direction. The fact is, that had he penetrated a little further in the cul-de-sac genreau, he would probably have done so and have been lost. 
Javert explored these gardens and these waste stretches as though he had been hunting for a needle. At daybreak he left two intelligent men on the lookout and returned to the prefecture of police, as much ashamed as a police spy who had been captured by a robber might have been. End of Book 5 Chapter 10